Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 5, Episode 18, Tyra Treason. Having acquired the official seals and keys of the eight eastern provinces, Taira Masakado gathered his followers into the provincial capital of Kozuke to announce the appointments of new governors and provincial officials. As he announced the promotions, an entertainer stepped forward and disrupted the proceedings. I am an oracle from the great Bodhisattva Hachiman. We confer imperial rank upon our child, Taira Masakado. The great Bodhisattva Hachiman calls forth an army of 80,000 and bestows this rank upon him. Masakado bowed deeply in respect to this announcement. His followers surrounded him and began calling him the new emperor. He accepted his destiny with his whole heart and began appointing his closest retainers as officials in his council of state. The new imperial palace would be in Shimosa. He had just conquered the eastern provinces, but soon all of Japan would bend its knee to him, the Shinno, the new emperor. At least, that is what one of the more famous accounts tells us. If you Google Taira Masakado, you will almost certainly come across something related to this moment. But as Dr. Carl Friday points out in his book, The First Samurai, we have no reason to believe that such an incident actually occurred, nor is it plausible that Masakado's true aim was to march an army upon Heian-kyo itself. In the first place, while the Kami-slash-Bodhisattva Hachiman was worshipped in much of central and western Japan, those in the east still preferred their own regional deities in the 900s and would not have readily known of this god. Secondly, Masakado's own correspondence with regent Fujiwara Tadahira seems focused on reconciliation with the central Heian-kyo government. Before we dig too deeply into Masakado's motives and objectives in seizing control of the eastern provinces, we need to introduce a new player in the events of 939, Fujiwara Sumitomo. We will spend more time with Sumitomo in the next episode, but it suits our purposes here to note that he was a former provincial official turned pirate who led a massive fleet of ships that raided the western inland sea, and in 939 he had started laying the groundwork for an open rebellion against the imperial government. Later historians assert that Sumitomo and Masakado were working in tandem, but there is little evidence from contemporary sources that this is actually the case. Nevertheless, Nervous Kuge began to wonder at the timing of the two rebellions at opposite ends of the imperial domain, and many believed that there was a conspiracy between them, evidence or no. Masakado, meanwhile, seems to have spent much of late 939 trying to convince his patron, Regent Fujiwara Tadahira, of his innocence. 
He does not deny seizing the provincial capitals, but claims that this was necessary to ensure his own protection. Having struck down one province, the letter reads, the crime was not light and might as well have extended to a hundred territories. Throughout the missive, he recounts his version of events, and even goes so far as to criticize the court's positive reception of his cousin, Sadamori, whom he declares should have been arrested rather than granted an audience when he fled from Masakado's warrant. While the letter is somewhat defensive in nature, Masakado seems determined throughout it to remain within the good graces of the court. Considering the court's willingness to grant official titles to powerful outlaws in order to adopt them into the Daijo Daikon Ritsuryo system, as they had previously done with Sumitomo, it could be that Taira Masakado was angling for such an appointment himself. He does, at one point, remind his patron that he is not just another man with a sword. He is a descendant of Emperor Kamu. Who is to say that it is not his destiny to become the supreme governor of Kanto, a conquering hero following in the footsteps of his illustrious ancestors? Later accounts claim that Masakado began calling himself the new emperor, coining the Japanese term Shin-no, which sounds identical to the Japanese title for crown princes, but used a different kanji in its written form. It is possible that Masakado's followers may have used this term, though Dr. Friday makes a compelling case that this is likely a later invention of writers who meant to demonize Masakado, pointing out that it does not appear in contemporary accounts. At the beginning of 940, amid all of his overtures to the court, Taira Masakado was also attempting to hunt down his cousin. Taira Sadamori, meanwhile, was encamping in the wilderness with a small entourage who had managed to escape destruction at the Hitachi capital. They didn't remain in any particular area very long, and managed to stay at least one step ahead of Masakado and his scouts. In the urgency of their search, however, some of Masakado's soldiers found Sadamori's wife. The officers of that group sent Masakado a report, and he quickly sent a response ordering that Sadamori's wife was not to be shamed. But it arrived too late. The soldiers had already stolen the fine clothes she wore and raped her. This horrific incident serves to remind us that non-combatants in Japan during Masakado's time, indeed before and after as well, had basically no assurance of any protection from marauding groups. Every time I've mentioned a raid in this podcast, sexual assault and wanton slaughter of commoners was almost certainly included. It's worth noting that some women carried small daggers concealed on their person so that they might commit suicide to avoid such treatment. Masakado was horrified when he was informed of this, and he sent her a set of expensive clothes along with a poem in an attempt to apologize. The poem reads thus, Though elsewhere I send messages on the wind to inquire where the flower separated from its branch now dwells. Far from being a romantic overture, this poem is metaphorically inquiring whether Sadamori's wife knows where her husband might be hiding. He is the flower who has been separated from her, the branch. The poem she sent in reply is quite elegant. It reads as follows. Though elsewhere, the scent of the flower scatters and comes to me, 
and I do not feel myself to be alone. Put simply, I know he's alive, but I have no idea where you might find him. Time was not on Masakato's side. Winter was already starting to relent, and spring was around the corner. Keeping his army in the field would mean sacrificing the coming growing season, which he could ill afford to do. Sadamori likely knew this and continued to evade capture by hiding in increasingly remote areas. He succeeded. Spring arrived, and Masakato disbanded his troops so that the conscripted farmers among them could begin sowing their fields. It is at this point that a warrior named Fujiwara Hidesato enters our narrative. The descendant of Fujiwaras who became local elites in Shimotsuke, Hidesato had been appointed to the office of Oryoshi, a peacekeeping appointment similar to that of a sheriff. Dr. Friday notes that Hidesato was, as far as we know, in Shimotsuke province when Masakado had sacked its capital a few months before and apparently did nothing about it. He is believed to have been, like many Kanto warriors in his day, an opportunist who saw no need to involve himself in such matters unless a personal reward was on the line. Taira Sadamori sought him out in early 940 and offered him such an opportunity. While Masakado was consolidating his gains in Kanto and attempting to hunt down his cousin, the court had not been idle. New Year celebrations were suspended in favor of militant mobilization. Various kuge were appointed as deputies of the government authorized to pursue and capture Masakado. Minamoto Tsunemoto was released from prison and granted a pardon, as the court had now become convinced that his accusations of Masakado's rebellion were truthful. They even granted him a rank promotion for his trouble. Taira Masakado was pronounced a traitor, and a bounty offered to anyone who killed him, regardless of their current rank or station. Taira Sadamori and Fujiwara Hidesato knew they needed to work fast in order to claim any such rewards for themselves. Fujiwara Tadabumi was appointed as Seito Taishogun, the general who subdues the East, and placed in charge of the government's official pacification army, which would soon depart Heian-kyo for the eastern provinces. As spring arrived, some of Masakado's scouts in Shimotsuke spotted an army being led south by Fujiwara Hidesato and Taira Sadamori in the direction of Masakado's headquarters in Kamawa. Following his usual pattern, Masakado gathered what warriors he could find and sought to intercept them. Such engagements had often gone his way in the past when, as now, he was facing an enemy with greater numbers. If he could defeat these enemies, especially if he could at last kill Sadamori, then perhaps the court would be more willing to call the whole thing a local dispute and negotiate with him. Unfortunately, his foes proved more difficult to find than he anticipated. Hidesato and Sadamori somehow evaded his main body of troops, and part of Masakado's rearguard caught sight of their enemy's encampment only after they had become separated. The captains in charge of that detachment chose to act in a way that I think Masakado would have approved of. They attacked, hoping to catch their numerically superior enemy off guard. This proved to be a mistake, however, as they were quickly repulsed and then aggressively pursued and cut down. Those few who escaped fled to Shimosa with Hidesato and Sadamori's troops hot on their heels and reunited with the main body of Masakado's force. 
the fighting was fierce, and had Sadamori and Hidesato been less cautious, they may have earned the court bounty that day. Masakado rallied a quick defense, and his troops took heavy casualties but held their ground. His enemy's withdrawal, however, was a strategic retreat, not a rout. The damage had been done. His numbers were now even more inferior to his foes, who had withdrawn into Shimotsuke for an all-out assault. At this point, many warriors who had previously fought alongside Masakado now abandoned him and openly joined Hidesato and Sadamori. This betrayal may seem confusing to those primarily familiar with the samurai of the much later Edo period, who valued loyalty to their liege even at the cost of their own lives. Like many warrior classes across cultures and history, the samurai changed over time, and it is a mistake to attribute the principles of the Edo period to those who fought in the early Heian. These early semi-professional warriors saw themselves in a way that is comparable to the modern professional athlete, part of a team when they fought battles, but also an exceptional individual who sought to advance their own career. Masakado had gained a fearsome reputation as a man who could gain a victory even when the odds were stacked against him. Now that he was facing a growing force of enemies and no reinforcements of his own to draw upon, and had already nearly lost a battle against said enemies, it started to look to many local warriors as if Masakado's team would soon become the losing side in this struggle. Hidesato and Sadamori, meanwhile, took the offensive. They crossed into Shimosa and made straight for Masakado's home base of Kamawa, burning and pillaging crops and homes as they went. This was a risky gambit which might have united the people of Shimosa against Hidesato and Sadamori, but their time was running out. Fujiwara Tadabumi and his government-sponsored army was on its way and would arrive soon. Unfortunately for Masakado, word began to spread throughout the Kanto that the shogun would be arriving soon to pacify the east and put down his rebellion. When he marshaled his forces at the prearranged meeting place, determined to stop his enemies looting and drive them out in another glorious victory, only a fraction of his usual force had gathered. Even some of his closest allies chose to remain in hiding rather than fight by his side. Prince Okiyo and Fujiwara Haruaki, whose influence had initially been partly responsible for his rebellion, were among those who hid, hoping the coming government army might pass them over. Outnumbered, Masakado could not afford to stay on the defensive. His horsemen charged madly into the opposing center, making early gains in the battle as they fought for their very lives. The wind continually shifted, nullifying any advantage which Hidesato and Sadamori's archers may have otherwise possessed. Masakado's army managed to drive their enemy center into a rout, killing dozens after they broke the defensive line and charging ahead to punish those who fled. Just as it appeared that Masakado had once more snatched an upset victory, they turned around and found that the enemy flanks had formed up behind them. The wind blew steady now into the faces of Masakado and his warriors. This gave the advantage to the remnant of Hidesato and Sadamori's troops, who loosed waves of arrows upon the exhausted samurai. Though accounts differ on precisely how it happened, they all agree that Masakado died that day. According to some sources, he was struck by an arrow, possibly a divine missile loosed by an archer who closed his eyes and prayed. 
Others say that Sadamori himself delivered the killing stroke, while still others claim that he and Hidesato both delivered killing blows, then argued about which one of them actually killed the treacherous rebel. Regardless of who dispatched him, Masakato's head was taken to the capital, where it was paraded through the streets in an official celebration of the court's victory. Masakato's troops were cut down or scattered to the winds, and when the government army showed up later, they had little to concern themselves with besides rounding up the rest of the rebel leaders and serving them with swift executions. Prince Okiyo was beheaded in such a manner, as well as Fujiwara Haruaki. Masakato's brothers found themselves at the business end of Itachi sword as well, and after a few were subjected to execution, the rest found a sudden interest in religion and shaved their heads to join nearby Buddhist monasteries, or fled deep into the wilderness where they were never seen again. While the first threat from the Kanto had been nullified, Taira Masakato's uprising would not be the last time that an ambitious warrior from the east would decide to make a power play. Next time, however, we will turn our gaze to the west, where the aforementioned pirate Fujiwara Sumitomo was about to make a power play of his own. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. If you happen to be in need of a new t-shirt, hoodie, sticker, journal, or magnet, and want to help support this podcast, why not kill two birds with one stone and visit our official merch store? Check out the ever-growing selection of designs inspired by Japanese history at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com. Thank you for your support.